The following message was recorded at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oviedo, Florida. Covenant is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, a community committed to seeing the gospel deeply rooted in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors in the Oviedo area. We welcome you to visit us on Sunday mornings in Oviedo or anytime online at cpcovedo.com. Our sermon text this morning is Luke 12, 22-34. And he said to the disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barns, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the, than the birds? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried, for the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. For this is your Father's good pleasure, to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does, does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Joe, for the amount of time you put in. Meditating on that prayer is really timely. All right, party animals. How many of you stayed up way too late last night? <laughs> yeah, I see a few hands. I did. I know that. You know, well beyond the normal hours. But I hope your uh, New Year's Eve was a blessing. And your New Year's Day is also one of rest. Um, in all seriousness, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you in need of your help this day. We need your word so badly, Lord. Will you speak to us through this teaching of your son, Jesus Christ, that we would hear his words, that our heart would be open to them, that you would make us more like him even, Lord, by the power of your spirit working through it. This very hour, we pray. Amen. One more question for you. How many of you remember what magic eye posters are? Anyone? Yeah, a few of you. I, I would have one up here. I have the power to do that. I could have made a slide with a magic eye poster, but I'd have all of you like staring at it right now. So just, if you don't know what it is, I'm sorry. I'm going to try to describe it. Like magic eye posters were this thing for a split second in the 90s were popular. Now I remember as a kid going through malls and people would stop at these mysterious kiosks. I call them mysterious because people actually stopped at them. Who does that? But back then, people would stop and look at these colorful posters that just didn't look like much of anything. But if you stood there and gazed at them long enough, and you knew how it worked, 
Suddenly, as the name would suggest, like magic, an image would appear. Now, there's a technical name for magic eye posters. They're called autostereographs. And these posters are essentially a, a, a blanket, a network of two-dimensional images that allow a, a three-dimensional image to appear. But there's a trick to it. You have to diverge your eyes, which is just, I think, a fancy way of saying you cross your eyes. You just you use your eyes to look in opposite directions, and this, this image will appear from the poster. And as I was thinking about this, maybe it's a little bit of a stretch, because that's kind of a natural way to use our eyes, right? But in some ways, becoming a Christian, uh, all of a sudden seeing reality as it actually is, seeing life pop out for you for the first time is kind of like this process of divergence with the magic eye poster. Because you're seeing the world exactly the way that God intended you to see it for the very first time, and your desires change. But we all know the difficulty of the Christian life is that our eyes aren't fully adjusted. We are wearing corrective lenses of a sort. And even as we live this life, things become a little bit out of focus for us. We get caught up with the concerns of everyday life. And our cares, they can consume us to the point that we desire and try to secure our tomorrow by thinking of it being in our own strength. And that can get the best of us. And sometimes we can even value ourselves based on our status, where we are in life, what we have, what we don't have. And that is a problem because ultimately our identity is in Jesus Christ. So here in our passage today, Jesus offers us hope. Here, Jesus shows us what freedom looks like. To provide a little bit of context, today's passage immediately follows the parable of the rich fool. And that serves as the negative example of how not to live. In that parable, a rich fool reaps such an abundant harvest that he has no room to store it all. So he starts building storehouses and becomes self-satisfied with his own wealth, only to have to give an account for his soul that very day when his storehouses were complete. So our passage today is really the positive teaching on how to live and relate to our possessions. And the main thing that Jesus is teaching us in this passage is that God frees Christians from the worries of this world to do the work of the kingdom. If you are a Christian, if you are a child of God, you have been set free to seek the kingdom of God. And it doesn't really matter who you are. If you are a creature made in the image of God, God cares for you. He defines who you are. But it's especially so if he relates to you as a father to a child. And he calls you to look like him in faith as you freely give to others as he is freely given to you. The first thing I'd like to draw out from Jesus' teaching is that God defines us. God defines who we are. And because God is the one who defines us, he defines what fulfills us. And that's ultimately him. Look with me in verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Notice that statement. 
The life is more than food and the body more than clothing. No matter who you are, Christian or not, life is not about the basic necessities. It's about so much more. And God defines every person to be satisfied with something more. I preached a sermon on this text, a little bit modified, last Tuesday night at OURM, Orlando Union Rescue Mission. There's a a men's division that the men actually get sermons every single day in order to receive housing and be a part of that ministry. I got to tell you, I've I've had this, I don't want to make it sound like I've had this sermon in the can forever and didn't want to preach it there, but it's, it's an intimidating text. It's very intimidating to preach it to this particular group of people because the need is so extreme. These are men who actually are concerned about where their next meal is coming from, what they will put on their body, where their next bed is going to be. It's, it's, it's intimidating nonetheless. But I want you to understand that this, this passage isn't only about being anxious and worried because of lack. Many people do not worry about where their next meal may be coming from or what they will put on. But that does not mean that this teaching does not apply to them because they don't worry about those things because of lack. Maybe it's abundance that's the problem. And this is where it's important to remember the negative example of the rich fool and what he did with his abundance as we listen to what God would have for us in this passage. The second thing I want you to notice about how we are defined is those first words of the passage. And he said to his disciples. Jesus is talking to his disciples. And disciples of Christ cannot be satisfied by anything less than Christ. Following him. Seeking after the kingdom that he came to proclaim. It is who we are. So here, Jesus is calling us particularly as disciples not to be fulfilled by things that could not fulfill us in the first place. The most basic necessities of life. Or even your most lavish dreams and desires will never fully satisfy you. Because the things of this world don't define who you are. God is the one who defines who you are. He has made you for something more. He's made you for himself. And if you're a disciple of his son, he has made you for his kingdom. So God not only defines who we are, God not only defines what fulfills us, he also defines how we are to go about finding that fulfillment. Not through anxiety and worry, but through faith. Before I draw out that point, I'd just like to say... uh, It's kind of comical that where does Jesus go to ease our anxieties and worries in this passage? He starts talking about death. (laughs) Like the most fear-inducing, anxiety-inducing concept or thought we can have about the future, he brings up as a small thing. He says in verse 25, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you're not able to do as small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Jesus uses death as a lesson to us that ultimately we're not in control, but we can cast our cares, depend on, and find fulfillment by entrusting ourselves to a God who is in control and faith. When I was 17, I had the opportunity of going to Europe. My father was stationed in the Air Force in northwestern Germany, and this was really close to Holland, 
and close to Belgium. So he lived in Holland, he was stationed in Germany, but he could find himself in one country in the morning and another country in the afternoon. And this is before the Euro, so you had to have a lot of different currency, even American currency for the Air Force Base. So I was just fascinated by the fact that my father had this billfold that had four different slots for four different currencies for wherever he would end up. And not only that, but foreign currency makes American currency look so bland. Yeah, the new $100 bills are getting closer, but they're still pale in comparison to the bright colors of foreign currency. And I was so fascinated with them, I took some Dutch guilders home. And if you've ever traveled abroad, you've been on mission trips, you know that when you bring some foreign currency home, if you don't have an exchange, it's essentially a souvenir at that point. It's, it's worthless. It's not like you could go to the store and buy something with it. Well, this is kind of how anxiety and worry work. The economy of God's kingdom is not built on anxiety and worry. The economy of God's kingdom is built on faith. Anxiety and worry is a foreign currency. This is why Jesus can say to his disciples, Oh, you of little faith. This is how we do not want to be defined. If you're focused on the things of this world and preaching to myself in so many ways, you're focused on the things of this world to the point of obsessing whether you have something or you don't. You begin to doubt God in a really small way, maybe even imperceptible in some ways, and you forget that you need him in the first place. A singular focus on the things of this world slowly produces a lack of faith. And anxiety over these things begins to corrode our trust in God. And this is a scary and sad place to be because he has created us to be fulfilled by him and to trust him in that, in faith. But knowing that God has defined you for something more, you are free from these consuming concerns. God has created you for something more. You well better believe that he will provide for you if he should dare to live for something more. This is his promise to us in Christ because he cares for us. This is the next truth that Jesus draws our attention to so that we might be set free from the worries of this world. God not only defines us, but God cares for us. And he cares for us as a father. He values us unlike anything else in creation. And Jesus teaches us this with two different illustrations with the same main point. The first illustration deals with food in verse 24. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? Here, Jesus' illustration really brings back to mind that parable of the rich fool. Because ravens don't have storehouses and barns like he had. And perhaps Jesus is being a little bit provocative here. Because if we were to go back to the book of the law, to Leviticus and to Deuteronomy, we would find that ravens are unclean animals. So Jesus is saying, not only do they not have storehouses nor barns, they are unclean, and yet God cares and provides for them. Jesus' point is simply that we are more valuable and birds. God cares for you. He values you. You have a, of eternal value to God. You are a, a being who has a soul that is marked by his image. 
And if you trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life, you can better well believe you can trust him in in your day-to-day life for the small things, your provision. The second illustration deals with clothing. Verse 27 says, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much will he clothe you, O you of little faith? This is another illustration that Jesus uses as an argument from the lesser to the greater. If God takes care of these things, he will certainly take care of you in seeking after his kingdom. And this reference to King Solomon, it's significant. I mean, we're thinking about the most powerful king, or at least at the pinnacle of glory in terms of the kings of Israel. Uh, building the temple, the, the, the presence of the Lord coming into the temple. Think about that in 1 Kings 8. 1 Chronicles tells us that Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And Solomon is kind of a perfect example, although we do know his failures. Solomon is kind of a perfect example of someone who depended and rested on God first. When God asked him, what will I give to you? He asked for wisdom first. And God added to him riches, honor, power. The point that Jesus is making is the same as the earlier illustration. God cares for all his creation, but he uniquely cares for you as a creature made in his image. And if you are a Christian, the unique way that God cares for you is as a child. This is another way that God defines us. In verse 29, Jesus draws our attention to the fact that God is our Father. It reads, And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Here, Jesus offers us an elixir, an alternative to doubt, anxiety, and fear by calling us instead to seek God's kingdom first, trusting that he will provide for us as a father. And in these three verses, Jesus uses the word seek three times. And by using this word seek, Jesus isn't saying it's bad to desire the necessities of life. I mean, what he is saying is that we shouldn't seek those things in a life-defining way that we seek after the kingdom of God. After all, a singular focus on these things is what defines essentially the rest of the world, as we see in verse 30. For all the nations of the world seek after these. God knows that you need them. But notice what else Jesus says. Your Father knows that you need them. Here we can clearly see that Jesus is focusing his teaching on a particular group of people. And remember how our passage started off. And he said to his disciples. Jesus is speaking to a group of people who are growing in their awareness that because of the Messiah, because of the Son of God, and their relationship to him as followers, they are also children of the Father. Jesus could have used any other title or name for God, but instead, here in his teaching, he uses the word Father. 
And this leads us to an important question, perhaps the most important question in life, akin to how may I be saved, is how does God become our Father? We become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. John talks about this in terms of being born. And he says in John 1.12, to all who believed in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, that name which is given among men, the only one through which we can be saved. To all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of the will of, the, of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we see the, the language of adoption being used, that we are adopted into the family of God through the Holy Spirit. And it's through adoption that we become fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. God is giving you Christ's kingdom. You have so much more than to be worried about the things of this world. You're being given the kingdom. And as your father, God promises to provide for you as you seek it. The consistent teaching of this passage is that God cares for all his creation. And if he does that, then God will most certainly provide for those who stand in that unique relationship to him as children. By using the name Father, Jesus is playing on the implicit understanding of the disciples, a general truth that we all would affirm, yet albeit general and very imperfect in this life, that fathers provide for their children. And what a privilege it is to get to live and work with him. I was just reading this last week that uh, an actor, Jonah Hill, a very established actor, um, he took a $60,000 paycheck for a big Hollywood film. Now, this is, sounds great for a, a movie that took seven months to shoot. $60,000, seven months, do the math. Sounds great to me. But to put it into comparisons, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio took a $10 million paycheck for this particular movie. But the reason why Jonah Hill took such a low offer is he wanted to work with Scorsese. He didn't really care about the money. He didn't really care about the, the loss on investment in terms of his time as a big Hollywood actor. He just wanted to work with him. I just want just to caution us. It's not like we seek the kingdom first in order to gain all of those other things. Seeking the kingdom is an end in and of itself. That's why Jesus says, seek it first. And we get to labor as disciples of Christ as children of the Father. There's no greater work to do, and there's no more reassuring work that we will be provided for as we do it. That's why Jesus wants you to understand that God the Father provides for you so that you can be free to seek his kingdom. And not only that, but also to know that the best ways to resemble him is by freely giving to others as he is freely given to you. This is the final implication of this passage. And I just want to say that in Preaching Lab, a uh, little secret here, Randy assigns Luke 12, 22 through 31. And there's probably so much wisdom in this because obviously 32 through 34 is a sermon of itself, but I've tacked it on. There's going to be a lot of questions left unanswered. If you want to talk about it later, we can. But one thing I want you to see is a... a major implication from all this teaching that God provides for you as a father, that God calls us to look like him as children. 
Because God is our Father, he, we bear a family resemblance to him by freely giving to others as he has freely given to us. Verse 32 reads, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in, he in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the wisdom of Christ on display. If there is anything that would maybe conjure up the anxiety and worry that he's been so diligently tearing down throughout this passage, it's that one phrase, sell your possessions and give to the needy. This one verse is so challenging. I don't want to take the weight of it or explain it away. But this command is accompanied by a radical assurance that it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Think about how odd that sounds. When have you ever heard of kingdoms typically being given away? But here is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So what exactly is Jesus calling us to do by sell all your possessions and give to the poor? Does he mean all of our possessions? Because I just added a little word there that wasn't in the text. By accident. He doesn't sell, sell all your possessions. He just says sell your possessions and give to the needy. Later on in Luke, he, he commends Zacchaeus for selling half of his possessions. So we see there that it's clear that possessions in and of themselves aren't, aren't bad. And they can be quite useful for kingdom work. I mean, these are the things that Jesus is promising to his disciples will be added to them as they seek the kingdom first. Luke tells us also of the, the well-off women who, who bankrolled Jesus' ministry on earth. So it's clear that wealth in and of itself is not necessarily bad, but it does have a bad use. And it does have a good use. And we apply that to the kingdom. We are investing in something so much greater I think what we need to remember here, most importantly, is that this passage does follow the parable of the rich fool in which Jesus said to the crowd in that parable, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of processions. We must guard ourselves against this and entrust ourselves to the fatherly provision of God. This passage has been driving home the, the reality that God provides. All provisions come from him. Even the ravens, even the flowers, all of it comes from him. So freely giving to others what he has given to us is an action that actually displays our resemblance to him as children. And our willingness not to withhold as we seek his kingdom. God has freed you from the worries of this world to live for something more. He is giving you his kingdom. And the promise of his kingdom awaits its final consummation in the new heavens and the new earth, yes. But his kingdom right now is wherever the rule and reign of Jesus Christ is on display, most prominently, most visibly in his church as the gospel is preached, as souls are saved, but it's also wherever the rule and reign of Christ is seen in the mercy and justice of God that goes out in his name through his people. And it's even seen in your own life of sanctification. When you are obedient to Christ, 
His rule and reign is on display. You are demonstrating the kingdom of God. And when you are generous in giving, you become a living parable of the truth that God takes care of His children in such a way that they can give freely as He has given freely, even of His Son. He gives us hearts that are defined by the kingdom. And Jesus promises to those that invest in it eternal, unfailing treasure in heaven that will never be perished, never perish, nor be stolen. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart will be guarded from these worries because it will be somewhere else entirely. To conclude, I'd like to leave with one closing application. In this incredibly rich passage, Jesus teaches us to lean on the Lord completely, not to be worried in this world, but to do the work of his kingdom. Because the simple truth that he is our father, and he has largely taught us this through illustrations. He teaches us how to look at the world. Jesus is the master illustrations, illustrator. He teaches us how to look at creation. All we have to do is ask one simple question when we look around. How much more? Try that sometime. When you see a boy feeding a duck with yesterday's bread, ask yourself, how much more does God care for me? As rare as it is, when you see a hummingbird sipping from a flower, ask yourself, how much more does God care for me? When you see a, a sunrise burning bright over the eastern horizon with all the promises of a new day, ask yourself, how much glory and honor and dignity has God given me as an image bearer of the one who we read in Revelation burns brighter than the sun? Remember the freedom that is yours in Christ. The glory of King Solomon may not have been able to compare to the beauty of a flower, but if you are in Christ, you have been clothed, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And that's all you need to stand before a holy God. Trust Him and seek after Him in His kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that You have loved us with such an incredible love in Jesus Christ that you did not withhold anything. You did not withhold yourself. You give us your spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance, Lord. You gave us freely of our son, of your son. So help us to cast our cares on you so that we might freely give to others. Remind us of this reality that you will provide for us as we seek your kingdom. Because we have been born again to an inheritance kept in heaven imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We ask all this in your Son's name. Amen.